0: In ancient times, people looked everywhere for signs of their destiny, in animal entrails, in a flash of lightning. If you were at a crossroads, you relied on the predictions of the gods more than an analysis of the facts. And of all the gods that people worshipped, it was Apollo, the son of Zeus, whom people relied upon the most. The shrine of the Oracle at Delphi, was the most renowned center of prophecy in the ancient world. Apollo was the voice of Zeus, his father, and his oracles were therefore the will of the supreme God of Olympus. The God made ambiguous predictions through a medium that was either a priest or a prophetess. Most of the people would wait outside the temple and try to understand the words interpreted by the priests. The words encouraged them and filled them with self-confidence, making them surer of their own strength. It is said that Gia, the goddess of the earth, was venerated in an earlier period of Delphi and that the serpent Python guarded her sanctuary. According to myth, at a certain point, Apollo grew tired of the small island of Delos where he was born and roamed Greece in search of a suitable place to build a temple worthy of his stature. When he arrived at Delphi, he decided to erect his temple there, but had to take on the serpent Python that was the guardian. Apollo slayed it with his arrows, which is why he is often referred to as Pythian. Once Apollo settled at Delphi in place of Gia, he started handing out oracles from his temple. After purifying themselves with water from the Castalian spring, Apollo's priestesses, called Pythians, descended into the basement cell. There, they were surrounded by intoxicating fumes emanating from a crevice in a rock. Under the psychotropic effect of the fumes, the Pythians uttered mysterious words that the priests translated into oracles either in prose or verse form. By giving vague answers that could be interpreted in a number of ways, Apollo's priests ended up influencing the politics of the time. And since they had power, they could be bribed. To have a well-wishing oracle who could help obtain consensus from the people, monarchs and politicians did not mind paying the priests. According to myth, Zeus, the father of Apollo, released two eagles from opposite ends of the earth to discover the exact center of the world. They met at Delphi. To the Greeks, this was the navel of the earth, their center of the world. And Apollo was the god of light and truth, the paragon of male beauty who embodied all the values they held dear. It was to Apollo that the Greeks and trusted their future.
1: Now, if you seriously studied the Greek gods, you come away confused and even appalled at the way they conduct themselves. Then You've got gods marrying gods, then having affairs with other gods, and then fathering children through humans. You even have one Greek god who eats his own children. I mean, you look at the behavior of the Greek gods. I mean, they are unpredictable and they're capricious. I mean, why would anyone follow a god like that? Well, when it came to the god Apollo, it was because of what he offered. You see, Apollo was one of the most important and complex of all the Greek deities in fact it it reminds me of the guy who walked into an antique store in San Francisco. I mean the store was filled from top to ceiling with memorabilia and just junk as he scouted around he he noticed a bowl on the floor, and upon closer examination. Uh, he noticed that it was actually a priceless relic from the Ming dynasty. It was obvious the shop owner didn't realize what he had because he was using it to feed milk to the cat. So seeing the opportunity set before him, he decided to strategize how he could get this priceless relic for a fraction of the cost. So he approached the store owner and he said... um, you know, that, that is an amazing cat you have there. Uh, you're willing to sell her. Oh, no, no, that cat's not for sale. That cat keeps uh, the mice out of the shop. Well, I really must have her. Tell you what, I'll give you $100 for that cat. Well, the store owner said, oh, that cat's not worth $100. But, but, I mean, if you insist, and you must, I'll take it. So he takes $100 out of his wallet, he hands it to the store owner, and he picks up the cat, he turns to leave, and then he turns back and goes, oh, you know, I do need something to feed the cat with. Uh, How about you throw in that bowl for $10? Well, the store owner said, oh, I couldn't do that. I mean, that bowl's a priceless relic from the Ming Dynasty. (laughs) You know, come to think of it, since acquiring it, I've sold 17 cats. You see, whether you're, rather, whether you're able to recognize the value of a bowl from the Ming dynasty, or whether you're able to recognize the value of knowing the truth, it's the truth that's really going to matter. It's one thing to recognize the value of a bowl. It's another thing to recognize the value of knowing the truth. In fact... In ancient times and throughout the centuries, I mean, men and women have paid lots of money to mediums in order to ascertain the truth. I mean, the truth about the present, the truth about the future. And in fact, in Jesus' day, the God Apollo would be the one place you would definitely go to one of his temples. If you wanted to ascertain information, to have light shed on the truth. In fact, this morning what I want to do is, is answer, ask and answer two questions. I mean, the first question is, who can actually shed light on the truth? In other words, who is really the light of the world? And historians tell us in the 4th and 5th centuries B.C., the, the followers of Apollo, the god Apollo, outnumbered uh, every other religious group in the ancient world. And the reason for that is the god Apollo was said to have brought light to this world and to bring prophecy. I mean, he was the god of light and prophecy. He provided the earth with light, but he also also had the ability to shed light on the future, which quickly gave rise in the 4th and 5th century to the cult of Apollo and the numerous temples that were dedicated to him throughout the ancient world. In fact, if you were to ask a Greek or a Roman, who's the light of the world, and they would say immediately, well, it's Apollo. Apollo is the light of the world. Now, according to Greek mythology, as you, as you heard on the screen, that Apollo was the son of Zeus. Uh, but came into existence through an illicit relationship with the goddess Leto. He he was born on the island of Delos, uh, and he was born there with his twin sister Artemis. And his powers were said to be awesome. Every morning he would mount his chariot and ride it across the sky like a big fiery ball providing energy and light to the world. But like all Olympian gods, Apollo also had a dark side. He was said to bring plagues and darkness at times to the earth. In fact, the writer Homer said that Apollo, at one point, in a fit of rage, flew down to the earth shooting arrows in humans and animals alike. But, What was known about Apollos more than anything is that if you looked in the sky and you saw the sun, it was said that you were looking at Apollo. Apollo was considered the light of the world. But did you know he's not the only one claiming that title? If you fast forward several centuries, uh, you meet a person of a much different personality than Apollo. Uh, A devout uh, Jewish man a carpenter from Nazareth, a man named Jesus. And at this particular time in Jesus' life, He's making a pilgrimage from Galilee to the north down to Jerusalem in order to participate in one of the Jewish festivals. It happened to be the Festival of Tabernacles. Now, this was a particular festival that commemorated the way God had led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, taking care of them through their 40 years in the desert, and led them into the promised land in Canaan. Now, on the opening night of this festival Jesus was traveling to participate in, Uh, it was a seven-day festival, and on the very first opening night, the priests were preparing four large candelabras. Now, these candelabras, they were located in the temple, in the court of the women. That's this area right here. And surrounding the court of women were colonnades along all sides that housed what was called the temple treasury. Now, this is where you could go in order to pay your temple tax. And at the festival, they would be doing that. It was also where you could go to gather uh, or to actually pay for other rites of purification that you needed at the time. All that to say is that at the Festival of Tabernacles, the court of women was extremely crowded with individuals, people carrying on businesses. Now, the priest would prepare four large candelabras to be lit in the court of women, And when I say large, I mean large. You see here, this is one of the candelabras. They were over 75 feet tall. At the top, there was four to five bowls, each bowl containing about 10 gallons of oil that would be lit at night. When lit together, those four bowls or five bowls at the top of each candelabra would... Uh, create a bonfire of sorts that would loom large over the temple walls, and all four of them would be lit together. In fact, when they were all lit, and they were lit every every night throughout the entire festival of Tabernacles, it was said by eyewitness historians that they these four candle would provide enough light to illuminate every courtyard in Jerusalem. And as a result, you can imagine, the Temple Mound became a light to the world, it was said. Now, these four candelabras are great bonfires, you could say. They loomed over the Temple Wall, and they were there to symbolize something in Israel's history. The pillar of fire that had led the nation of Israel out in the wilderness every night. I mean, the pillar of fire was there to communicate to the Israelis that God was with them, and it illuminated the quarter of a million tents that were used to house the entire nation. It was the evidence of God's presence. So during the Festival of Tabernacles, for seven days, people in Jerusalem would gather Uh, in and around the temple. It was a time of celebration. They would dance and sing and they would celebrate two main things. First, the glory of God that dwelt among them through the pillar of fire when God led them out of Egypt. And secondly, they would celebrate the promise God made that He would one day send a permanent light, an anointed one, a Messiah. So for seven days, They would celebrate. But on the last day of the festival, they would need to extinguish the lights. So it was here, on the perfect, in the perfect place, the temple in Jerusalem, on the perfect day, the last day of the festival of tabernacles, and at the exact perfect time, the last day of the Jewish month, the day of the new moon, when darkness would once again um, cover all of Israel, the darkest night, that Jesus stood up and said this in the court of women. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I mean, Jesus is claiming to be the light of the world. Now, could you imagine a more spectacular place or a more spectacular way to communicate that message than what Jesus chose? And notice, He doesn't say, I am a light of the world, meaning one of many. But He's saying, I am the light, the one and only light of the world. Now, that single statement spoke volumes to the Jewish listeners as well as to a Greek or Roman audience. I mean, to the Jews, Jesus was saying, Here I am. I'm the one you've been waiting for. It's me. I am the Messiah. To the Jewish, I mean, to the Hebrew, uh, the Greek and Roman world, He was saying, Apollo's not the light of the world, but I am. Now there are those who will say, well, all Jesus was doing is just borrowing ideas from Greek mythology and working them into his life. But did you know centuries before Apollo ever was invented, uh, one of the Jewish uh, prophets mentioned this very thing in his writings. In fact, the prophet Isaiah in 700 B.C. predicted the coming of the Messiah this way. He said this, "...the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light shall shine." And then he goes on and says, and this sounds very familiar, he says, "...for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders." And His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And did you know that very same thing, theme was repeated again by uh, Zechariah, who happened to be the father of John the Baptist, uh, when he said, With which the day spring from on high. By the way, dayspring from on high is really a figure of speech likening God to the sun. So when the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. And then repeated again by Simeon, when he saw Jesus as a baby moments before his dedication at the temple, he said this, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation To the Gentiles, and glory to your people, Israel. I mean, Jesus is saying to the Greek and Roman world, I'm the light of the world, not Apollo. But did you know that's not all he's saying in that statement? I mean, there's a second question we need to answer, and that is who holds the oracles? Now, you go back to the 4th century BC and the cult of Apollo, they would say, well, Apollo did. Apollo holds the oracles. And as a result, it gave rise to numerous temples throughout the area, and people would come from all over to visit Apollo's temples. Now, what was the draw? Why would they travel throughout the ancient world to come to one of these temples? Well, it all began in the city of Delphi, where Apollo was said to have slain uh, Python. It was a snake-serpent-like creature, and because he slayed him in Delphi, Delphi became the center of Apollo worship and the very first temple that was raised and dedicated to him. Now, Apollo was known as the god who had the gift of prophecy, and so in the ancient world, Apollo had a number of oracles People who could be his mouthpiece, his spokesman, could give these prophecies to the people. So a person would travel from somewhere in the ancient world, come to Delphi, make an offering, and then go visit the oracle and listen to what advice that the oracle had to say. So you can imagine the temples grew in popularity throughout the whole area. In fact, it got to a place that in Delphi, uh, it was a place that every major decision made in the ancient world was run by the oracle at Delphi. That's the influence that she had and that Apollo had. So uh, upon arriving at Delphi, uh, the pilgrims would make their way up this windy road here. I mean, it starts here, you'd make your way up and you would come here to where the uh, treasury was. Now, I've stood in this building of the treasury. It's about half the size of this building. And I tried to imagine what it would be like for the building to be filled with gold and silver coins, because that's what took place. You made your deposit there. Then you continued up the winding road all the way to the entrance of the temple of Apollo, it was here you would get in line and wait your turn to talk to the oracle, who was also known as the Pythia, and it was uh, a usually a a woman of the local village, and you would give your question to the Pythia, and uh, she would take your question and go inside the temple of Apollo. You can see the pythia here. And she would hallucinate uh, by sniffing vapors that came through the cracks in the floor because there was a a fault that ran through Delphi right at that point. And it would cause her to hallucinate. And then um, she would begin uh, speaking all sorts of gibberish. Uh, It was incoherent. It was babbling. But a priest would listen to her, and the priest would be the one to interpret the message through the Pythia that came through Apollo, which was actually a message that they said came from Zeus. So if you were a king and wanted to know, should I engage in battle, you would go visit the Pythia. If you were wondering whether you should get married, you would talk to the Pythia. If you had lost a child and didn't know where to find him or you wanted to change occupations, you would talk to the Pythia. In fact, Alexander the Great was known to make the pilgrimage across to Delphia, I mean to Delphi, in order to ask the Pythia whether he would be the conqueror of the world. And she gave him the answer of yes. It was very definite, which was unusual. Now, it's a a lot of debate As to whether the answer was given of the Pythia's own free will or was it at the sword of Alexander. Alexander knew the value of getting the Pythia's uh, affirmation before starting any campaign. So you can imagine this practice was quite popular. In fact, they even built theater for people uh, to visit so they could be entertained. In fact, I took this picture from the top of the theater, and down here is the ruins of the Temple of Apollo. Uh, they also built a gymnasium for people to get exercise, and stadium that I had the privilege of running in, a stadium that housed the Pythian Games, uh, a kind of an Olympic event that happened every other year in the ancient world. So you could say... Uh, Apollo worship was pretty big in the ancient world. In fact, he was able to shed light on the future. But sadly, his light ends up getting snuffed out after a few centuries. Today, there's little that remains of the temple of Apollo other than its majestic setting, as you can see. But in contrast with Apollo, you've got this carpenter from Nazareth And his life continues. His light has continued to shine for over 2,000 years. In fact, his light overcame the Roman Empire. And one of his followers, Paul, when he wrote to the church at Rome, he was asked about the value of the oracles of God. In other words, what's contained in this book. He was first asked, is there any advantage of being Jewish And then he answered this way. He said, much in every way. Chiefly because to them, meaning Israel, the Jews, to them were committed the oracles of God, the very words of God. He was affirming that the Bible was the word of God. So the question I have is, So what exactly did Jesus have in mind when he said he was claiming to be the light? Well, by claiming to be light, Jesus was saying something about himself, something about his heavenly father, and something about the life that he came to offer his followers. I mean, you think about it. Light, it sets our biological clock. Light triggers our brains in order to be able to see color. I mean, light supplies the energy that all things need to grow. Without light, all plants would die. And we would too if we didn't find vitamin D by some other source. So, in other words, light gives life. By saying, I am the light of the world, Jesus is saying that... He's saying more than I'm going to shed light on the path to heaven. He's saying what I want to do is provide you what you need in order to thrive in this world. In fact, many of you know my my son, Josh, is a physician at Children's Hospital. And he tells me one of the most frustrating diagnoses to read on an infant's chart is the diagnosis failure to thrive. I mean, for some unknown reason, the the body is not functioning the way it was designed. I mean, something is off in the child's metabolism. Instead of gaining weight, the child is losing weight. Instead of developing as he should, the child doesn't grow or, worse, regresses. It's called a failure to thrive. You know, that's a pretty good description Uh, of the plight of humanity when we don't have a relationship with the Creator. Uh, you, You know, without His engagement with our lives, there is a failure to thrive. I mean, if given a choice between being alive and thriving, every one of us in this room would choose thriving, wouldn't we? You know, spiritually speaking, thriving is more than success. It's more than reputation. It's more than the things I experience or the achievements I accomplish. I mean, thriving is really the joy I feel when the challenges I face in life are equally met by the strengths and abilities that I've been given by God. I mean, I begin to thrive... When who I am is in sync with what I was created to do. I mean, when we thrive, we're no longer consumed with boredom or with anxiety, but with the grace that has been extended to us by God. I love the way John Ortberg describes it. He said, thriving is what human beings were made for. It's being fully alive, curious, and fearless. But uh, thriving means that who I am and what I do is aligned with my design, what I'm designed to do. And the only way you can make that alignment sure is to be in relationship with the one who's designed you. You, you see, I think that's what Jesus had in mind uh, after he said, I'm the light of the world. Notice what else he says. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So light, first of all, it gives light, it gives life. But that's not all it does. I mean, secondly, you could say light reveals. In fact, several years ago, a church I planted in Little Rock, I remember I had to hurry home. I was late. I had a DVD I needed to drop off by the soundboard in the worship center, and uh, so I ran through the doors. The lights were off. And I didn't want to take the time to grope for the light switches to try to get the lights on. I mean, I've been there a thousand times before. And so I knew I could just run along the back wall all the way to the other side, drop the DVD off, and then run back all the way out the door, and I wouldn't waste any time at all. So I took off across the back wall. Now, what I had forgotten is that our light crew had set up a platform about a foot off the ground that was there to position a spotlight we needed for Sunday services. So I'm running along and I come face to face with a very rude awakening. I mean when my right leg hit that platform, I knew I was in trouble. Because the rest of me just kept going where it came to an abrupt stop. And it was at that point I thought, the spotlight. Where is the spotlight? I end up doing a complete somersault over the platform and just landing in a heap on the other side on the floor. You see, darkness conceals, but light reveals. Light enables you to see things that maybe have been there all along, things that you're completely unaware of, things that have been hidden, but light can reveal it to you. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, I believe in Christ like I believe in the Son. Not only because I see it, but because by it all things are seen. You see, by Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, He's saying that He wants to reveal to us things that may not be seen. Things that He wants to shine His light on that if we don't recognize them can do damage to our life. Now, you may not be convinced that the Bible is the Word of God or even historically historically reliable. Yet, if you look at the Bible from a very practical perspective, you discover that it contains all sorts of wisdom. Wisdom that can can rescue you from from pain and mistakes, whether it's relational or, or financial or emotional. It's wisdom that works whether you are convinced that these are the oracles of God or not. Did you know every command in the Bible was given to us for one or two reasons? Uh, It was either there to protect or to provide. To protect us from things that can bring us harm or to provide for us things we're incapable of providing for ourselves. You see, allowing Jesus to shine His light can bring tremendous benefit to our lives. But that's not all that light does. You know, when I moved here about three years ago, uh, our house had not closed, and so I live with my son who's on the west side of town. And I'd make the trek from west to east and then east to west every day. I mean, I drove right by Paul Brown Stadium, the great American ballpark. And for some strange reason, every time I did that, I ended up on 6th Street in downtown Cincinnati. I mean, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out how I did it. And so I would try my best to get back on the interstate and I'd take a turn. I'd be facing oncoming traffic and I'd end up pulling over. And then doing a U-turn, so I'd take my GPS and I'd program it. And I turned it on and I allowed it to lead me out of that maze that's downtown Cincinnati. Now, now just because you've got a smart-sounding lady with a British accent on your GPS, it doesn't mean you trust her. She'd tell me to take a right, and in my gut, I knew I needed to go left. I mean, I'm supposed to be going this way. There's the sun is rising that way. I'm not to take a right. I take a left. And I take my left and my life would just pass before my eyes. I'd be facing four cars coming right at me. Fast. I mean, my escapades in downtown Cincinnati reminded me of that old proverb that says, there's a way that seems right to men, but the way it ends in death. You know what I'm talking about? Well, I discovered every time I disagreed with my GPS, I got this interesting response. Recalculating. Recalculating. You see, the the lady with the British accent knew the moment I had made a wrong turn. The moment I had made a mistake. But it surprised me. She didn't say, you can't follow instructions. You idiot! I mean, I've told you to take a right three times. You keep taking left. I'm not going to help you anymore. <laughs> she didn't belittle me. She didn't make me feel bad about my independent nature at all. I mean, all she said was recalculating. Recalculating. Do you know what that was? Those were words of grace. You see, claiming to be the light of the world, Jesus is saying, uh, light guides. And like a GPS, God is more than willing to tell you what direction to go if you're willing to listen, if you'll surrender to His guidance in your life. And when you mess up, and you will, time and time again, He won't scold you. He won't belittle you. He simply takes your mistake into account. And then establishes a new course in order to get you home. Now, that's a light I could follow. But but that's not all light does. The last thing light does is light removes fear. I mean, there are a lot of things in this world, this fallen world, that are out there that bring about fear. I mean, you've got family problems, you've got... Uh, health issues, you got financial problems? Max Lucado, in his book Fearless, puts it this way. Each sunrise brings new reasons to fear. Layoffs at work, slowdowns in the economy, flare-ups in the Middle East, downturns in the housing market. Some demented dictator is collecting nuclear warheads the way others collect fine wines. A new strain of flu is crossing the border. We fear being sued, finishing last, going broke. We fear the mold on our back, the new kid down the street, the sound of the clock as it ticks us closer to the grave. Fear, it seems, has taken a hundred-year lease in the building next door and has set up shop. You see, fear... It sucks the life out of your soul. It'll steal any contentment you have. It's no wonder the, the most common command Jesus gave in the Gospels while He walked here on this earth was some form of the phrase, fear not. You see, the fact that Jesus' is light tells us that He sees everything that's going on in your life. So no matter what comes into your life, you, you can rest in the kind arms of the Savior who saw it coming. But you also know He's powerful enough to have prevented it from entering your life. It had been in your best interest to do so. And He's loving enough to help plot a course through whatever difficulty enters your life. So, so when you begin to see the storm clouds of fear sweeping over your life, I want to encourage you this week to pause and just say, God... I'm going to believe in the next few minutes that you love me, that you're powerful enough, and that you're in control enough. So I'm going to trust you to be the light in my life that will dispel fear and provide exactly what I need. You see, by leaning into Him like that, you can actually found rest in the midst of whatever turmoil enters your life. In fact, that's why the Apostle John, a man who walked closely with Jesus and who in fact wrote these very words that we've looked at today, said this at the end of his life. He said, perfect love, His perfect love, cast out all fear. Wouldn't you like Him to do that in your life? You know, maybe as... You've been listening to that song or listening just this morning. You're thinking, you know, I need the kind of life described, the kind of light described in the Bible in my life. You know, you can have that simply by asking. It's as simple as that. Maybe you need the life Jesus promised or maybe you need the guidance He promised or you need to dispel fear in your life, whatever it might be. He would love to come in and be a light to you. All you got to do is communicate that to Him. I'm going to close in prayer. And in doing so, you you may want to follow my prayer with your words and ask Him to be a light to you. If you do, you could pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I need your light. Shine it where you desire in my life. To bring more life out of me so I can thrive. Or or maybe to reveal things I have not seen before. Or, Or maybe to guide me. Or maybe to dispel fear. I ask You to have Your way. I'm more than willing to follow You. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, I want to thank you for coming. And we look forward to seeing you back next week when we continue in the series. So we'll see you next Sunday.